Welcome to S2 Underground, a freelance intelligence agency fighting terrorism, fake news, and political tyranny around the world. I'm the trouble star, punkin' instigator. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Underground. This is the Ukrainian War Intelligence Update for Saturday, the 26th of February, 2022. So let's get right to it. I don't have too much information coming out of Europe today. I've really been focused on trying to figure out where the front lines are, uh, but there has been some pretty big news with regards to sanctions. The EU has stated that they will be closing uh, European Union airspace to all Russian aircraft. Um, We're still waiting on a bit of clarification on that, because that would mean that more or less the entire continent of Europe's airspace would be closed to Russia. Uh, And that would actually be a pretty significant move to counter Russia's actions in Ukraine. But again, Russia would have had to have planned for this and could have guessed that this would happen, so who really knows if this is going to affect Russia that much? Plus, Russia has a lot of trading partners out in the Far East and in the rest of Asia, so really trying to figure out what this is going to mean for Russia and what the actual uh, details are. The European Union has also agreed to cut off some Russian banks from the SWIFT banking system, which I will admit I did not think they would do. But again, we will have to see what banks get cut off with these sanctions, uh, because as with all sanctions, the devil is in the details, and we'll have to actually go through and read the actual documents and not a news story on the documents to see what is actually going to happen to Russia with regards to sanctions. In Russia, Alexander Chulikov was found dead this morning, allegedly taking his own life. I say allegedly because, much like other powerful figures in the world, top-ranking politicians, oligarchs, and important people in Russia do not normally meet their end by natural or their own causes. And Alexander Chulikov was the financial director for the entirety of Gazprom, Russia's biggest energy monopoly and is the largest natural gas company in the world. Along these same lines, and because I didn't have anywhere to put it, there are rumors of dissension within the top-ranking politicians in Russia. Again, with propaganda flying everywhere from all sides at this point, uh, it's really hard to say what is actually going on, and it is very unlikely that we're going to have any kind of information-gathering capability behind closed doors in Russia's top political sphere. However, rumors are running rampant right now that a lot of dissension is breaking out between some of the old guard in uh, Russian political structures and some of Putin's uh, closer uh, friends and associates and things like that. Uh, Allegedly, a lot of people were kept in the dark uh, in Russian high society with regards to this Ukraine situation, and they're not too happy about it because, uh, like we're getting ready to talk about in a bit, uh, the invasion is not exactly going... Uh, as smoothly as one would have hoped, right? It's not a complete and decisive uh, conflict just yet. Uh, Russia is having to fight for every inch of terrain they get, uh, for the most part. We'll talk about that again in, on the fronts, but I just wanted to mention that there are inklings of some dissension going on within within uh, Russia's political sphere, much like the rest of Europe, which is completely and utterly disorganized in shambles with regards to the sanctions, like I mentioned last time. Uh, things aren't exactly perfect in Russia either, so... I guess we'll have to see what comes of this. We'll be on the lookout for any kind of indicators of squabbling going on, but really I just wanted to point it out because it might be an, it might be a factor for how this Ukrainian conflict goes in the future. 
I'm going to skip over the naval updates for today because I don't really have anything constructive to add, and we'll talk about the Black Sea here in just a bit. Uh, but moving on to the overall operating picture, uh, intel gaps are many and wide regarding the positions of the front lines at this stage. Russia continues her assault on all fronts, though there has been a measurable decrease in the speed at which forces have been moving. Many Russian units have been scattered on various fronts or are black on logistics like food, water, and ammunition. Much like yesterday, Russia's advance seems to be the most speedy down south along the Crimean front, but this is likely due to the open terrain and lack of significant populated areas to hold up the Russians. In places like urban centers or the more densely populated areas around the country, Russian forces are being observably bogged down by both Ukrainian military actions and civilian efforts to slow their advance. As to whether or not this will be effective enough, time will have to tell on that. Again, we are continuing to see Russian forces being sent into action piecemeal, which, if you step back and look at things from a historical perspective, is almost morbidly ironic considering the historical significance of this exact terrain. It was almost 80 years ago that the German 6th Army was advancing across what is now Ukraine to fight that battle that would decide their fate at Stalingrad which was renamed as Volgograd after the war. And both belligerents of the current war are echoing some of the same tactics used by both sides during the conflict during World War II. Ukraine is taking the fight to the cities and letting their invader come deeper and deeper into their territory so that she stretches her supply lines thin. Russia is echoing the ghost of Yermenka by not taking advantage of the doctrine of massing her forces, sending relatively smaller units into battle piecemeal when she should and could be sending in massive coordinated waves of troops. Ukraine, on the other hand, is a much smaller and more disadvantaged force, but still somehow is managing to deny the Russians the air, even if it is mostly with shoulder-launched manpads. Russia, seemingly ignorant or dismissive of the importance of air power, has not yet dedicated enough aerial forces for this conflict, and is now beginning to pay the price for it. Russia, also largely relying on speed and rapidly advancing armored columns, have begun to realize that a blitzkrieg might be an effective tactic, but it requires fuel and logistics to make it work. And Putin surrounding himself with yes-men instead of people who know what they are doing might be a pretty big reason for the losses that have been sustained. Taking the initiative to rapidly pierce deep into enemy terrain has been proven to withstand the test of time in the field of warfare, but it does have its downsides. Punching deep into enemy terrain is all fine and dandy until you realize that you have no supplies and you are deep inside enemy terrain. I think that all of these observations are utterly fascinating to those who study history, and though I certainly don't think that this is an exact parallel to the Stalingrad campaign, these observations are plain as day to us here, so I just wanted to point this out to anyone who might also be thinking along the same lines. Both the Ukrainians and the Russians are cherry-picking the best, and sometimes the worst, parts of their own history in order to fight this war. Before we get to each front, let's briefly examine the IFF markers that Russia has been observed to be using, since we're getting a lot of questions about this. For the most part, Russian forces are using alphanumeric letters to identify friend or foe, or IFF. This is extremely common for all militaries to do, and extremely important for Russia, because Ukraine has pretty much the same equipment. So having some measure to tell each other apart is important. However, there has been some variation between the IFF markers used, 
Some units stationed in the east have the letter V on their vehicles. Some from Crimea have the letter O, like the forces from Belarus. So just remember that as you see the thousands of videos or pictures that are coming out, there's a little bit of variation between these. On the northeastern front, more or less a united front has emerged with Russian forces linking up from Cherniev, Konotop, Sumy, and Kharkiv. I do want to caveat that by saying there's a big uncertainty bubble right there in the middle between Konotop and Cherniev because we don't exactly know if this linkup has occurred or not. Uh, the troops in Konotop have, have been experiencing great difficulties just surviving over the past day or so, so we don't really know if this nice flat we have drawn on the slide here is an accurate line, or we don't, we don't know if this is a complete line or if this is just pockets of front lines uh, as Russia moves forward. Either way, this has occurred with great difficulty and at great cost to the Russians. Like I mentioned, locals in the vicinity of Konotop are reporting that Russians are scavenging for fuel and supplies. Lots of single tanks and single BTRs are also noticed to be driving around sometimes uh, instead of in column form. Uh, I don't know if this is an isolated event, but it seems like some units in Konotop have gotten lost or uh, been the only survivors of their column. It's hard to say. Uh, the, the situation is far too fluid to make a judgment call either way. But it is certain to say that the situation is quite serious in Konotop for the Russians. This grants a little bit of credence to our earlier assessments that Russian logistics are not nearly adequate enough for a slow-paced assault. Plus, the downsides of Russian doctrine are coming out now. Heavily relying on the battalion tactical group, while an adequate tool for the task of invading a nation like Ukraine, still presents problems when it comes to the allocation of logistics. Bringing in BTGs from all over Russia and having them work together in a non-traditional command structure has got to be a logistical nightmare. In other words, the Russian army is, right now, figuring out their logistical limits, and they are figuring it out the hard way. So over the coming days, we will see how big of a problem logistics will be for the Russians. Along the central part of the northeastern front, Sumy has been retaken by Ukrainian forces with the assistance of local citizens who have been helping with the defense of their city. With Kiev being a primary target, Russia appears to have made the decision to break contact with Ukrainian forces in the vicinity of Sumy, or tie up Ukrainian forces so that other armored divisions can maneuver around Sumy and head for Kiev. This is an interesting play for anyone who knows what the word salient means, so if Russia has indeed decided to encircle and bypass Sumy, this could be a significant vulnerability that Ukraine could exploit if they try this tactic in other places. Along the eastern front, not much uh, new information to report. It looks like a lot of the civilians out east have already started to kind of move away from the area, so information is going to be kind of spotty probably from here on out on the eastern front. We do know that an amphibious landing did occur in the vicinity of Maripol, though we don't know any other details besides that. But this amphibious landing will be important for the rest of the southern front, which we'll talk about now. Along the southern front, the situation remains much the same, with Kyrgyzstan still in Ukrainian hands, though there is fighting in the city right now, and the city might have been lost over the past few hours. It's hard to tell. There are also reports of Russian troops fighting in Myakiev right now, just to the north of Kyrgyzstan, but again, it's really uncertain, uh, and the front line is very fluid in this area, so we'll have to wait and see what the line actually turns out to be, and, and, and probably by tomorrow or a few days from now. It's possible that Russian troops are doing what they have done up in the northeast in Sumy, where some Russian forces encircle a city and tie up Ukrainian forces, while other Russian units maneuver around and bypass the city entirely. Whether or not Russia has the forces to keep doing this leapfrog action remains to be seen, but it seems to be a tactic they have started to use in the past couple of days. 
Along the eastern portion of the southern front, advances continued to be made in the vicinity of Maripol, and like I mentioned, the amphibious forces that have landed in the vicinity of Maripol will be very much needed in order to secure the city. Remember, here in the south, this terrain is wide open, and this kind of terrain is exactly where Russia maintains an overwhelming advantage, which is why their advance has been so fast. However, that advantage rapidly diminishes in the urbanized areas, and in areas that require the use of paratroopers to win decisively, which we will talk about when we get to Kiev. Along the western front, not very much new to report, Moldova continues to accept refugees, as does Romania, Hungary, and Slovakia. Uh, so there's that for those who are concerned about refugee uh, movement. Uh, in Transnistria, we've tried to do some digging uh, and get to the bottom of what's been going on there. Uh, and it looks like Russia only has about one or two BTGs worth of troops there. So maybe maybe a thousand troops top. That's just kind of a rough guess. Uh, so that's really not enough to do anything with. Uh, in fact, the tensions with Moldova right now, Moldova, the rest of Moldova, uh, supporting Ukraine in this conflict, um, that tension there has probably got those Russian troops in Transnistria a little bit more concerned with their own security than with conducting any kind of operation within Ukraine. Plus, just looking at the map, the southwestern portion of Ukraine is very much a, a low population density area, so they've got to punch a long way before they actually get to anything that's militarily significant. So Transnistria is probably going to be very much an irrelevant front. Uh, for this conflict, but again, we'll still keep an eye on it and see what goes on. With Russia taking more and more losses, there's no telling what they might do. Up north on the northwestern front, limited fighting has been observed within the outskirts of Kiev, but again, we have one of those little uncertainty bubbles here because the terrain between Chernobyl and Kiev is highly dynamic and very fluid at this moment, so we don't really know what's going on uh, in in the area between Chernobyl and Kiev. Uh, just other than fighting is occurring, but it's, it's very sporadic. It's not like there's a fluid front line that we can draw for you. Uh, but let's get into Kiev. In Kiev, proper fighting is broken out all around the city today as Russian forces continue their attempts to use helicopter assault forces to conduct air assault operations to seize and hold critical targets that will allow fixed-wing operations, bringing in even more troops efficiently. In other words, for those of you who don't speak staff officer, Russia has been putting a lot of troops on a lot of helicopters and flying them into locations near airports so that they can seize the airports and therefore allow bigger aircraft to land and offload troops and supplies. The fight for Kiev might be a long and drawn out affair, so Russia is going to have to seize all of the airports in the area for that fight to actually be a victory. Russia has also been conducting many devastating airborne paratrooper drops for the same reason. And I say devastating because these attempts have been very costly for the Russians. Ukrainian forces have learned quite a bit and have been taking advantage of every weapon system that they have and concentrating those weapon systems in and around all prospective paratrooper landing zones. There are only so many places a helicopter or a paratrooper can land, which is something that the Ukrainians know full well and the Russians learned today. Ukraine even shot down two IL-76 over Kiev today, both of which were allegedly fully loaded with Russian paratroopers. We're still waiting on photos of the wreckages to confirm this with any certainty, as always, but that might take a while since one wreckage apparently came down a few miles outside of Kiev in the vicinity of Vasilkiv, and the other much further south, about 20k out from the city. If this is true and two IL-76s have been shot down by a Ukrainian Su-27, as is being claimed, 
This is going to sting for Russia, as these can carry between 150 and 200 paratroopers depending on configuration and what the pilot is willing to fly with as far as weight. Numbers-wise, it's not a huge blow to the forces that have already been committed for the invasion. Russia has hundreds of IL-76s, uh, but it's not nothing. More importantly, this indicates that the Ukrainian Air Force might still have some fight left in them. Maybe, though I'm not really sure how. But this definitely proves that Russia has not been able to achieve aerial superiority in the skies over Kiev just yet. Aerial superiority, which will 100% be a requirement for this invasion to go much further. Also in Kiev, civil defense preparations by civilians are fully underway, with dozens of photos and videos showing the thousands of Molotov cocktails that civilians have prepared for the upcoming urban fighting. Molotov cocktails are a cheap and easy munition to make, and one which is devastatingly effective against pretty much all armored vehicles, when massed in concentration as has been observed during the Ukrainian war so far. 30 or 40 Ukrainian citizens with 30 or 40 Molotov cocktails in their hands taking on a single BTR might not seem that effective, but so far in the previous fighting, this has been observed to be a very valuable tactic. And that's not considering the psychological effectiveness of such a crude but gruesome weapon system. Additionally, the Interior Ministry of Ukraine has asked all citizens to turn off their cell phones or only use them in emergencies due to Russia's capabilities to detect cell phone signals and therefore detect large groups of people which could be targeted easily. Again, this highlights how important electronic warfare has become in modern conflict and how even civilians must consider the risks that their smartphone brings to the table. Along the civilian front, not too many changes uh, from yesterday, although I, I would like to point out that uh, Ukraine's neighbors to the west, uh, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Moldova, have been more than willing to accept Ukrainian refugees. There hasn't been any hang-ups on this, on this part other than the traffic to get to the border. Um, it looks like that's going pretty smoothly right now, but again... We have to remember that even though it's a good thing to see nations stepping up and taking uh, people away from combat zones who don't want to be in combat zones, right? It's good to see uh, European nations accepting refugees uh, from this conflict, right? Uh, we also have to remember um, that Europe is a political entity and nation states are political entities. And this invitation might not last uh, forever. So, unfortunately, we have to think about things like this. As we know, the invitations for Afghan refugees just four months ago uh, was handled with um, uh, not as much um, good-naturedness as one might have hoped uh, from European nations. Now, again, Af the Afghan culture and the Ukrainian culture is very different. So, uh, I think that Kind of a side note is the reason why um, nations in Europe were kind of hesitant to take Afghan refugees is because of cultural reasons, but and and of course historical political stuff. Um, but I do just want to point out that hey, even though nation states are doing the right thing right now, or at least trying to with regards to refugees, that might not be the case forever. Just wanted to point that out. And that's pretty much all I've got for now. Um, we've, as a side project, been working on a, a sort of a briefing of, or this might just turn into a slide on one of these briefs, of information that uh, encapsulates world events that have happened while the world's eyes have been on Ukraine. Uh, because a lot of people are asking, and rightfully so, what else is happening while the world is, is distracted with Ukraine? And the answer is, kind of a lot. Uh, a lot of things are happening around the world. 
Um, everybody's asking us, what do you think is going to happen about China? Uh, what are, are they going to move on Taiwan now uh, because of this? I don't know. Um, it seems like, uh, to answer that question, uh, just while I'm here, uh, I don't know. I don't think so at the moment. More than likely, what China is going to do is wait a little bit longer and see what other sanctions Europe comes up with. Um, because, again, Russia and China are very different nations. Uh, Russia, before this conflict and before their ruble uh, dropped uh, down to the bottom, uh, Russia was uh, not in as severe, dire straits economically as China is. Uh, China is barely functioning economically right now. They've had a, a lot of economic problems. And, um, again, the fight for Taiwan is going to be a lot different fight uh, than the Ukrainian uh, conflict. So, yes, it is a valid concern to think that we might be witnessing global uh, conflicts kicking off here. But at the same time, I would also like to stress that the fight for Taiwan is going to be very, very different. And the nature of it's different. It's different strategically, different operationally, and different tactically. Um, so I don't think that is much of a concern at this stage. That might change tomorrow. Who knows? Nobody really knows what China is going to do. So I guess we'll have to call that uh, and play that by ear. As far as other stuff going on around the world, we're also keeping an eye on the United States. Um, that is for us who, for, for those of us who are located here in the United States, that is a much more pressing concern than Ukraine, even though Ukraine's, uh, the Ukrainian war's impacts are being felt here in the United States in the form of cyber attacks and just uncertainty and, of course, the market implications. Uh, but some of the stuff that's been going on in the U.S. with regards to um, tracking protesters and intelligence collection on uh, American citizens on U.S. soil. Um, some of that stuff we'll have to get into a little bit deeper uh, as time goes on. I just wanted to let everybody know that we are thinking about it. We are seeing this stuff, and uh, we're not neglecting it uh, just because Ukraine uh, is still going on. Um, we're trying to get as much out there as we possibly can, but again, we're a pretty small team here, so we're doing what we can. So again, that's all I've got for right now. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for your support, and we'll see you next time. And as always, fight in the shade. Such a beautiful